0: Hi, I'm Tim Cosgrove, President and General Manager at CMA's Colonial Honda. We know the last few months have been, to say the least, a learning curve. From teaching your kids at home, to figuring out video conferences, or even remembering the right way to go down aisles. We had a lot to learn, and our dealership did too. After all, our goal has always been to make the car buying process easy for our customers. So when we couldn't serve you in person, we found a different solution, CMA's Easy Purchase. It's simple. All you have to do is head to cmascolonialhonda.com, select your vehicle, secure your financing, value your trade-in, and select the delivery location. And don't worry, we're always here to answer questions. If you'd like to complete it all online and you're not sure about something, give us a call and we can virtually walk you through it. Or you can take any of these steps in the dealership if that's more comfortable for you. CMA's Colonial Honda. Owners just do more. Visit CMA's ColonialHonda.com.
1: Hear ye, hear ye. It's time for the Sports King Show, live on Sports 1061, The show with scores, interviews, the hottest topics, and the biggest sports stories of the day. It's the show where you'll hear from the players that make the plays, as well as the key coaches and personnel who make it happen. All of this in live phone calls from you, the Sports King Nation. Now, direct from his castle, located in an undisclosed location in the capital city of Richmond, Virginia, let's welcome to the throne, His Highness, Jamie King, the Sports King. On Sports 1061.
2: And good morning, Thursday, June 11th. Hope you guys are having a great day so far. Of course, we want to thank Big Al and Sports Phone uh, earlier. 8 to 10 live leading into me. 10 to 12 live, of course, Ben Maitland. That guy. Talk about an Iron Man. Double duty he pulls for us. And we thank him for his work behind the glass And We're going to start off the show today letting you know that a little bit later we're going to have Ray Schonke, who was a longtime player in the NFL, played for the Redskins, 10 years for the Skins, 12 seasons overall, and he did amazing things. We're going to talk about his time with Sonny Jergensen, protecting him and all the great moments there in Redskin history with him. We've got a special announcement before we get off the air today about a special guest tomorrow as well Uh, you won't want to miss. uh, I'll let you know about that a little bit later in the show. Well, we want to start the show with some thoughts from you. Uh, I'm going to give you my take and what's going on. And, of course, yesterday there was an announcement made, and I want to know how you feel, whether it be on Facebook Live or Sports 1061. Of course, I have gone on record not the biggest NASCAR fan, not like my producer, Ben Malin, who loves the sport. He goes to Richmond Raceway. He goes whenever he can. He watches with his family, and it's something they do. He's been a long-time NASCAR fan, and he knows this stuff intimately, folks. I have family members that, hey, that's my driver. That's my guy. I've gone on record saying, I don't have that guy. I admire certain people. Dale Earnhardt Sr., of course, was a guy I always thought was tough as nails, and uh, he has been missed so dearly in the world of sports racing and in sports in general the Intimidator himself. But when you look at some of the great drivers, Dale Earnhardt Jr., of course, very popular for so many years, one of the most popular racers on the course and off the course. Uh, You look at the situation there in terms of NASCAR. And with NASCAR trying different things, of course, the stage racing and the different aspects of NASCAR, that they're trying to make it more exciting and bring more fans in and more inclusiveness, which I totally understand, and I get that. And then yesterday, the announcement was made. It came down from the hierarchy in NASCAR where they said that they are now going to ban any sighting whatsoever of the Confederate flag. So you've got two sides of the fence here. Some people think it's only one side and should only be one side, which is understandable. I'm taking no side. I'm just telling you, uh, not a Big-time NASCAR fan, but you watch the sport, and I'll watch certain races just to see the drivers and what they do. And trust me, these guys are in these vehicles in extreme temperatures and the teamwork it takes to win races. It's unbelievable. Um, But I will say this. On this issue, you've got two sides of the fence. You've got one side that's claiming, hey, this is our heritage, and this is what it's about for us. Other side of the coin says, Hey, this is a hate issue. So you got a heritage versus hate. And the NASCAR officials said, hey, we're going with the hate aspect. We're going to cancel this situation altogether. And Dan Walken from USA Today wrote an article talking today about the question we'll see what's more important to NASCAR fans the racing or the racism and it's hitting you right in the face folks and we'd love to hear your opinion 804-327-0888 well yesterday's decision by nascar to eliminate once and for all the confederate flag which many of course feel is that sign of hatred Uh, many are looking as like hey it's a southern heritage thing and they need to keep it there what's your take give us a call we'd love to hear from you but when i look at this You know, it's something of an impression aspect. Obviously, they've been talking about getting rid of it. Uh, You've got so many people that are saying it's got to go, it needs to go, Dale Earnhardt Jr. among them. He's felt for a long time, uh, five years ago in an interview, he said it's time for us to move on and get rid of this symbol that so many people feel is a hate-filled symbol. The hardliners, I mean, you've got some folks uh, predominantly, and I'm not going to say just in the south but predominantly in the south they're saying hey it's my right to bear that flag to carry that flag to take that flag to the racetrack with me and I've seen the pictures of the infields uh, around certain tracks you can look around and just go back and google these photos and you'll see by and large there's a lot of people that take that flag with them or stickers or hats or whatever because you know the old saying about hey this is something of a Uh, symbol of where I came from, and I'm going to show that pride. Now, of course, we know right now with the way things are and the symbolism of that, we know it's a hate-filled symbol for so many folks, and they understandably did what they felt was best. The only question I have and I'm wondering about is, will this be a major blow to NASCAR in terms of their fan base? And just a question. I'm not saying it will, not saying it won't. I'm just asking what's your take? 804-327-0888. Because NASCAR drivers uh, themselves, they're talking about them not being able to uh, speak freely. And will they be able to talk about this pro or con without repercussions? And you wonder, of course, Bubba Wallace, uh, who drives a Richard Petty car, came out and talked about it and said it needs to go. It's time for them to get out of here. No one should feel uncomfortable when they come to a NASCAR race. So you wonder in terms of that aspect, when NASCAR getting on board here, taking the right steps, I applaud Bubba Wallace for his stance. He's a guy, he's a bright guy. He's got so much going for him. He's a talented driver. And he really has stood behind the situation. So you're looking at this and you're saying to yourself, where do we go from here? And you're going to say, wow, I'm on this side of the fence for this reason or this side, I won't. And if you don't go to back to NASCAR because you can't carry the flag, wear the flag, and we're talking hats, shirts, the whole nine yards, if you have anything with a Confederate flag, it's done. It's totally done. So some folks out there are saying, and I've received calls in Texas from some folks that said, hey, man, that's it for me. I'm I'm turning the channel. I'm not going to support. And that's your choice. But in the climate today and what's going on To be able to pay respect to people that are feeling this right now in this climate, I applaud the Bubba Wallaces of the world to stand up and say enough is enough. Now, you may disagree with me. If you do, give me a call, 804-327-0888. What side are you on when uh, you look at this deeply Uh, You've got Joe Gibbs, a guy that uh, said, hey, this situation uh, of the ignorance and when you hear Bubba Wallace speak, it wakes you up a bit. And Joe Gibbs went on to say that I think NASCAR is going to do the right thing here. So Ben Maitland has a cut from Bubba Wallace. So take a listen This is before the Martinsville race, and I just want you to hear Bubba Wallace's take on the situation. So let's go to the driver of the Richard Petty 43. Here is Bubba Wallace
1: tonight is, is something special today's been special again hat, hats off to, to nascar phelps and i have been in contact a lot um just trying to figure out what steps are next and and uh that was a huge pivotal moment for the sport a lot of backlash but it, it creates doors and allows the community to come together as one and uh that's what the real mission is here so i'm excited about that and
2: so bubble Wallace is excited about that it's a situation that's ongoing right now and we won't know for weeks and months to come exactly what's going on in terms of how it's going to affect nascar uh certainly love to hear from you 804-327-0888 will it affect nascar in a big way will it affect nascar in just a ripple we don't know but we do know that the discussion is there and it's the situation that we're trying to understand more about but nascar is at the center of this situation and of a- now they have come down and said that is it for the Confederate flag in the NASCAR industry total from A to Z. So we will keep our eye on that. Uh, we do want to let you know, of course, cha- transferring over to the Major League Baseball side, the uh, greedy owners. Um, it's all being pointed towards the owners now versus the players that the owners are showing uh, that they are the ones that are not wanting to Uh, bring about the season, whereas Rob Manford, the commissioner of baseball, has the full right to basically say, come back and play in a shortened season. If he does that, they have to come back and they have to play. If he uh, puts that edict out and says, you guys got to come back, you guys have to play. uh, It's one of those things where Major League Baseball has made the proposal to play Uh, Baseball game, 75% prorated salary, 76-game season, playoff pool money, no draft pick compensations for signing players. The season will finish uh, September 27th. The postseason ends at the end of October. These are the things we're talking about. It all looks good on paper, but here is the problem. Uh, When you look at this, Uh, Trevor Bauer of the Reds said it's actually 75% of prorated amount, which works out to be about 35% of our full salary to play for 47% of the games. So you understand where the players are coming from to a degree, but folks put a pen to paper and look at what 35% of a major league baseball salary would be. And you would trade with any of these guys, even the lowest paid players on any day of the week. The money is extraordinary. It's exorbitant, the amount of money these guys are getting paid. And yes, I understand the hit they're taking is going to be extreme, but they have got to take one for the team. Major League Baseball is in a precarious position right now. You're looking at a situation that if they do the wrong thing, they run the risk of losing fans forever. In so many ways, there are such hardline fans and I've heard from them, phone calls, texts. If they don't come back, I'm not coming back. That's some of the sentiments some people have said. And I understand it because it's like once you've been spurned and you felt like your back has been turned on uh, us, the American people, you're like, I don't know if I want to go back down that rabbit hole again. I don't think I want to go back there and say, you know what? I'm going to give them another chance and another chance, and another chance. These guys make more money than, the average person will see in a lifetime. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go back and they kind of slapped me in the face and said, Hey, I'm not playing for you now, but you want me to come and support you and pay for you and do all the things that, you know, are out there. So it's a pro and con situation. What about you? Would you come back? Uh, if they decide not to play, I, for one may eventually, you know, I love baseball. I've gone on record saying that, but I'll tell you what, it's going to take a long time because I'm going to look at it from a side view stance and say, hey, you guys didn't come back for America when America needed you, and I think it'll take me a long while to digest that because I just don't like the stance when you've got a player group and an ownership group and neither one considers us the fans. And so you're looking at it from our lens and you say something has to be done for us. So that's my take. What's yours? 804-327-0888 is the number. 804-327-0888 is the number. And we can talk about uh, the NASCAR situation, talk about Major League Baseball, and uh, so much more. And, of course, uh, we know that uh, last night was the Major League Baseball draft. We're going to go through the draft, um, and we're going to go through each pick. But uh, it was really one of those things. uh, Number one pick was Arizona State. Slugger Spencer Torkelson. He was the number one pick in the Major League Baseball draft last night. So we're going to go through the draft in detail in just a little bit. But when you look at the draft happening, uh, trying to get some excitement about baseball on that level, and then you can't come to an agreement on the other level, you're like, eh, I just don't know. It's hard to get excited about a baseball season that may not be played at all. But uh, the Washington Capitals, in a hockey sense, are reconvening today at uh, up in D.C. They're getting at the complex there, and six hockey players at a time could be on the ice, and they're going to start practicing today. So you're seeing signs there. And then you're hearing things about the NBA where players are now questioning some whether or not being in Orlando is the safest thing possible and whether it's going to work at all. So it's, uh, to me, a little baffling that now that they've come out with the 22- Uh, team situation where we can go towards winning a championship. Now all of a sudden you're going to raise your hand and say, hey, I, I don't agree. Maybe this won't work. You should have done this before they set the schedule and all these weeks and months they've had of discussion. Why didn't you bring more of that up now? But it seems like now that it's in stone that we're going to move forward, you now have issues with it. I think they have tried to check every box in terms of the safety aspects. And, yes, not everything has been determined on how it's going to work and it's still a fluid situation. But we have to look at it that the NBA and Adam Silver deserve all kinds of praise for trying, much like Gary Bettman and the NHL. They are both trying to get things back on track, and they need to be applauded. But, folks, whether you're a NASCAR fan or not, going back to NASCAR, they deserve the most credit because, you know what, I have not heard one driver, or one official talk about, well, we got this prize money this weekend. Prize money hasn't even been discussed. They're making their money, and the sponsors are still getting paid. Don't get me wrong. But it hasn't been the dollar that's been the driving force, pun intended. It has been getting back on track, getting something back for the American public to enjoy. And that's why NASCAR numbers continue to rise, because they say, these guys are putting it out there and are giving us something to cheer about. So we cheer for them. And that's why I'm becoming a bigger NASCAR fan, because these guys are doing something that very few people out there outside of the UFC and Dana White, another guy that deserves a lot of credit. He has been putting on these tremendous octagon matches as of late with no fans. They've got, of course, Bruce Buffer um, in the ring, and he's doing the best he can to get the excitement going with no fans, and they're having good matches. People are talking about it. But the UFC and NASCAR are stepping to the forefront saying, we're going to give you something to cheer about, and we're going to do it the right way. And I noticed something in watching, because I watched the background things, what's happening in the background. And in between every UFC fight, if you watch closely, they've got guys with masks and tanks, and they're in the ring. The minute the, the uh, fight is over, they're spraying, they're wiping. They are so serious about making sure the health of everyone concerned Uh, wiping every aspect, spraying every aspect to make sure it's uh, uh, clear and virus-free and doing whatever they can to make it safe for everybody involved. So they're taking the steps, and you're seeing more and more of that, and especially UFC, NASCAR has done an amazing job. And trust me, when you've got these guys that are so close sometimes in the pits doing what they're doing and taking the precautions they are and having the masks on and so forth, and the heat that these guys deal with around these vehicles, it's unbelievable what they're doing. And they're doing it with a smile. I mean, they're doing it in a very big way for America. That's why I feel they deserve so much credit in terms of the NASCAR situation because of what they are bringing to us, something to smile about, something to think about, and that is to their credit. Because it's a big, big step. Because when everybody looks back, they'll say, hey, NASCAR did it. Let's follow their route. Let's do it the way they did it. In the NFL and college football, uh, we're talking about them coming back and, how they're going to come back, they're going to have to look at these other sports and say they're doing it. We need to follow suit like that. So the number here, 804-327-0888, coming up on the show a little bit later, is going to be uh, Ray Schonke, of course, played for the Redskins in 10 seasons, 12 overall, one of the greatest Redskins, voted one of the greatest Redskins, of course, the guard, played for and with Sonny Jurgensen. We're going to find out about uh, Sonny Jurgensen and what it was like being in a huddle with that guy, the Hall of Famer, and what he was in terms of a leader. These are the exciting things I like to hear in terms of what happened behind the scenes. What was it like when Sonny Jurgensen was calling plays and what type of leader was he? And When things went wrong, what differentiated him from other quarterbacks? What made him stand out? Why was he that Hall of Famer? When you have somebody that's with you for 10 years in that huddle and you look at him and you learn about him and all the greatness and the great players that came You know, you've got a guard that was able to watch this happen firsthand. It's exciting to hear. Yesterday on the show, of course, we were excited. Mike Bass and, of course, Roy Jefferson, two guys that I really admire. And it was so interesting as I was looking at my notes last night, Mike Bass talking about Vince Lombardi, things I didn't know. And that's part of the show that I love is as you ask questions and you learn from the guys that paved the way, And in this current climate of uh, race relations and racial strife, to hear Mike Bass say on my program that Vince Lombardi was shown prejudice against him because he was an Italian-American. And Mike Bass said the reason a lot of the African-American players felt really close to Vince Lombardi was because they saw that he had endured racism. And you say, well, come on, how can that be? He was a white coach. Yes, he was a white coach, but he was an Italian white coach, and he had darker skin. So Mike Bass said, as the story goes, it was held against him for years in many ways because he had darker skin, and I guess he was perceived in a darker light, if you will. So therefore, he was not allowed to get a coaching opportunity because of the color of his skin, not the greatness of the man but the color of his skin. So he said, we identified with Coach Lombardi and we understood what he was going through and therefore he understood better what we were going through as a people. So I was like, wow, this is really uh, unearthing some things that I had not known about Lombardi. Of course, you see all the, you know, what the heck are we waiting for? Let's get out there and you see all the great speeches and all the things and the plays and the leadership. But the road that he had to go was not an easy one. And we found that out yesterday. So I appreciate Mike Bath shedding light on that. That was very fascinating in terms of the background of Vince Lombardi, in terms of his opportunity and why it could have come sooner, but it did not. And that was a situation we learned yesterday on Sports King Show. is the number. 804-327-0888 is the number. We're going to take a timeout now. We're going to come back. We're going to look at that Major League Baseball draft. I'm going to give you the players who were selected, and we're going to find out more about that and find out who the Washington Nationals, the world champs, they're still world champs. Find out who they picked, all that and more, on this Thursday morning edition of the Sports
1: King. This is Trent Murphy, number 93 from the Buffalo Bills. You're listening to King Sports King on Sports 106.1. You're listening to the guy that was once addicted to brake fluid. But please don't worry, he says he can stop at any time. It's the Sports King on Sports 1061.
3: I'll be honest. My number would be 60 to 70 games and you pay a full prorated salary and we get back to the game of baseball. Why wouldn't that be acceptable?
2: You know, Carl, I'm not going to get into um, bargaining with you about issues with the Players Association. We'll make another proposal to them uh, that's consistent with the economic realities that we're looking at, including the fact that um, our our revenues are going to be down over 70 percent. And hopefully um, we'll find some flexibility on the other side and make an agreement. Rob Mann for Commissioner Baseball saying hopefully they'll make an agreement soon. He went on to say that we're losing 70% of our revenue. That's a projection for Major League Baseball. My question to you out there, Facebook Live, Sports 1061, how can you survive as a league losing 70% of your revenue? If you're a business and you lose that, you can't survive. You can't keep the doors open. But somehow people uh, taking sides here, saying it's agreed of the owners, agreed of the players, but 70% of revenues will be lost, and that's a projection out. But later in that interview with Carl Ravitch, Rob Manford said, when asked, will baseball be back? And I have gone on record saying I don't think so. I think it's a lost cause at this point because there's such an impasse right now. Commissioner Manford said 100% baseball will be be back this year. 2020 baseball will be back, according to the commissioner, 100%. So that's something we can hang our hat on and hope for the best. I hope he knows something we don't, but right now it looks really, really doubtful, but we will see. Now, we're going to go through the Major League Baseball draft last night. Some excitement there, of course, Wednesday night, the 2020 MLB draft. Uh, The Detroit Tigers, as mentioned earlier, had the number one pick. They grabbed the Arizona State Slugger, Spencer Torkelson. And Torkelson, let's talk about him he belted 54 home runs in 127 games at Arizona State. It was only two home run shy of the Sun Devils record held by Bob Horner. Bob Horner was a big bopper. He could really, really drive the baseball. So Torkelson is a guy that is talented. The right-handed first baseman announced as a third baseman by Rob Manford. Uh, so he got that wrong with plus power, and he's drawn comparisons to the likes of Mets star Pete Alonzo. If you're a fan of the Mets, you know Pete Alonzo, that guy can take it deep. Any time he gets a hold of one, it's gone. Pete Alonzo is amazing as far as a bat in his hands. Uh, Torkelson fits a major need. Uh, Detroit has some strong pitching prospects, but it looks like Torkelson is just what the doctor ordered And uh, I know they're happy in Detroit to get him. At number two, the Baltimore Orioles, uh, Heston Kerstad, the right fielder from Arkansas, is a guy that uh, led Team USA with a 395 average last summer, strictly a corner outfielder. Uh, the strikeouts are concerned. He had a uh, 65 to 21 strikeout to walk ratio as a sophomore, but he was off to a great start in non conference play in 2020. Uh, he's a guy that's going to fill some needs for that outfield in Baltimore. They definitely need some help there. They need a lot more help than just this kid, but he is definitely a step in the right direction. At number three, the Miami Marlins took Max Myers, the right-handed pitcher, and they've compared him with Walker Buehler from the Los Angeles Dodgers. He stands around six feet, but has hit triple digits on a radar gun. This guy, I've watched tape on him. Remember the name, baseball fans, in Miami, Max Myers. This guy, when I say triple digits, uh, Google him, YouTube him, you will see. He brings major heat. Uh, Three digits on a radar gun, and he is absolutely amazing in terms of his speed, velocity, and movement of his ball uh, as it approaches a batter. He is dynamite, so they got a real winner there. Uh, Kansas City Royals picking fourth take uh, left-handed pitcher Asa Lacy. He is another hard thrower. Uh, Of course, uh, he got off to a great start as a junior at Texas A&M. He was 3-0 with an 0-7-5 ERA Forty-six strikeouts and only twenty-four innings. He's a power pitcher, mid to high nineties fastball, eighties slider, or he's a two pitch guy right now. Control has been his biggest issue. When he's on, he's on and sometimes he obviously is out of strike zone, so they gotta keep him under control. But he is a guy that you have to take very seriously from a left hand standpoint. He brings a lot of juice there. At number five, the Toronto Blue Jays recapping last night's Major League Baseball draft. They go with third baseman Austin Martin from Vanderbilt. Uh, Martin is a guy that hit 392, 10 home runs as a sophomore in 2019. He had a 377 average in 1.16 OPS in 16 games this season. He's primarily been a third baseman at Vanderbilt. He has tremendous glove, uh, and he's a guy that can handle the bat as well. Third baseman, Austin Martin, goes to the Toronto Blue Jays. And uh, number six, you've got Seattle Mariners, Emerson Hancock, a right-handed pitcher uh, out of Georgia. I love this kid. He is a big guy. Remember this name, Emerson Hancock, out of Georgia, going to the Seattle Mariners. I think they got a steal here. He's a guy that his uh, season in 2019 entered, uh, ended early because of an injury. He's four. He throws in the high 90s and he is a frontline guy. He will be a guy that will break in that starting rotation very quickly. He is somebody that really, really is a talented guy, high velocity guy, great movement. He has great breaking ball. They're going to work on him. Uh, just to make sure uh, he gets injury-free. But when he's right, he is absolutely phenomenal. At number seven, the Pittsburgh Pirates last night selected Nick Gonzalez, second baseman out of New Mexico State. He put up tremendous numbers at New Mexico State. I mean, listen to this, 399 average average. He's just unbelievable, boggling uh, 6'10 OBP and 1.15 slugging percentage. Yes, you read that correctly uh, and heard that correctly For me. The numbers came in the most uh, offense-friendly environment in college baseball. They put the wood to the ball in New Mexico State, and this kid is dynamite. He was an MVP in the Cape Cod League uh, last summer as well. Uh, so remember the name Nick Gonzalez. Pirates fans are going to love him. In Pittsburgh. this kid is a real gamer. At number eight, the San Diego Padres, Robert Hassel, center fielder, Independence High School. He has been regarded as a high school player with the best hit tool in the draft. He's six foot two, lefty swinger, lean frame, above average arm, and a chance to stick in center field. So you're looking at a guy that has some room to grow, but a high schooler that definitely is a talented player. At number nine, the Colorado Rockies took Zach Veen, center fielder. Out of Spruce High School in Florida, uh, of course, Veen is a guy that is uh, talented. He's compared himself, uh, and many people compare him to Chris Yellich. Cody Bellinger, for example. Two guys uh, you want to be compared to. He has a great smooth swing, effortless power. Six foot four, above our average runner, and he can play center field. You're looking at a guy that, of course, has been committed to Florida for the Gators. So will he go? to the Florida Gators or at number nine, will he take the big signing bonus and go right into the major league baseball situation? So you wonder uh, what that's going to look like if he's going to decide to go to college, because he already has committed and mentioned that he would like to go to college, but you wonder if the almighty dollar is going to win out there. And sometimes when they throw so much money at you in that first round, it's a situation where you say, you know what? I'm going this direction. I'm going to take the money, and uh, we're going to go ahead and go back to college at another day, but I'm going to take the money now, so you wonder what's going to happen there. At number 10, the Los Angeles Angels, Reed Detmers, a left-handed pitcher, something they really needed. He is a polished guy. He is in the 90s from the left side, has a big curveball, ball, big change ball, change up, and he's a real artist with the ball in his hand. He really knows how to work both sides of the plate. Uh, he's done well. He fanned uh, a tremendous amount of uh, uh, batters. He's a guy that uh, knows how to pitch in all situations. At uh, 46 Ks in 22 innings, and he is a guy that has a high ceiling and should move through the majors to the majors very quickly out of the minor leagues. I don't expect this guy to be in the minor leagues more than a year, year and a half tops. Remember Reed Detmers, left-handed pitcher, which the Los Angeles Angels desperately need. At number eleven, recapping the Major League Baseball draft, which was last night. Chicago White Sox take Garrett Crochet, left-handed pitcher. This guy is a huge guy, six six Southpaw, a guy that has been amazing at uh, Tennessee. What has he done there? 143 strikeouts in 128 innings. He also has allowed only 21 home runs and a 4.76 ERA, 4.08 as a sophomore. But his stuff as a left hander comes at you from 96 to 100 miles an hour consistently with a breaking ball. So think about this, folks. You got a guy six foot six on the mound, throwing nearly 100 miles an hour, giving you that heat, and then he snaps it off on you, and you're sitting there like, Ugh, I don't know about this. So it's a guy that has a tremendous upside there. Um, He had a muscle issue in his shoulder uh, last year, but he returned to make one start. And in that one start, he came in and threw 99 miles an hour. So he has not lost his velocity. He could be that starter, a big-time addition for the Chicago White Sox. Remember Garrett Crochet, the left-handed pitcher. And I love this guy uh, coming from the left side. And he not only has the speed, but he can break it off on you as far as a breaking ball as well. Number twelve in the Major League dra- uh, Baseball draft last night, Cincinnati Reds took Austin Hendrick, uh, the outfielder from West Allegheny High School in Pennsylvania. He is a guy as talented. He only turns nineteen in a week. He's very old for this draft class, and I can't believe I'm saying a guy is old at, of uh, course, nineteen years of age. But Hendrick is a little old for the class, but his ninety-one miles. Uh, per hour exit velocity could leave the massive power in Cincinnati's home run friendly great American ballpark I think he is just tailor-made for them remember Cincinnati Reds Austin Hedrick the outfielder this guy's going to really bash it there at that ballpark which is very hitter friendly uh, the great American ballpark there. Number 13, San Francisco Giants take Patrick Bailey from NC State, the catcher. Uh, he's a switch-hitting catcher who earns uh, high grades for his throwing arm, and he calls games well behind the plate. He is a guy that uh, gets to call his own game. So very rarely in the college game do you get the opportunity to call your own game, but they have enough trust in him. He's a guy very smart behind the plate. He's hit 302 at NC State with 29 home runs and 131 games. He has a good eye, uh, 14.9 walk rate, including 23% in 2020. He has a huge upside. He's well-rounded, and he's a guy that is one of the top college catchers in the entire major league level um, prospect-wise. So when you look at a guy that you're looking, hey, where's a catcher? Maybe the next Buster Posey in San Francisco, it's going to be Patrick Bailey out of NC State. So, the Giants uh, really wanted him. They think this guy is going to be the future at the catching position and somebody they're going to invest quite a bit in. At number 14, Texas Rangers took Just, Justin Foscue, a second baseman out of Mississippi State. Uh, he's a guy that uh, showed good power. He's got 14 home runs, a good approach in terms of walks, 30 walks, 32 strikeouts to go with a 331 average. He, you know, a lot of people think that he pulls the ball too much, and he needs to get a more level swing. But a guy that they're very uh, excited about in terms of what he brings at that second base position. He's very talented, and they feel that he's a guy that can do a lot of things in that infield to help. Uh, second baseman Justin Foscue, of course, Texas at number fourteen. At number fifteen, uh, Bryce Harper in the MLB draft has a new teammate. It's Mick Abel, the right-handed pitcher from jesuit high school in oregon this guy six five uh you know many people felt he's been a first-round candidate for a long time he's been up in that 90s range on the radar gun throughout his prep career he was inconsistent the reason he slid the 15 was because he has been inconsistent in terms of what he brings to the table uh up one game down another game so he unfortunately dropped to 15, but maybe it's the best place for him. It took 15 picks, but he is the top high school pitcher selected in this draft. He's an Oregon State commit who looks every bit a part of the elite pitching prospect that he is, but he's got that really lanky build. He's going to have to add muscle and he's going to have to add strength to what he has. But he's hit 97 miles an hour. You're talking a high school kid throwing 97. And so, whenever you're around that 100 uh, mile an hour aspect, you have an opportunity to get through the minor leagues pretty quickly. They want to get you up on the hill, but he has some things to work on. He's very slight in terms of his build. He needs to get stronger. And can you imagine a kid I'm talking about right now uh, getting stronger, uh, throwing 97 now? What that will do, just a few more miles an hour on that. on that aspect and he's going to be even bringing it more at six foot five he gets on you very quick in terms of his arm strength number 16 the chicago cubs the cubs pick ed howard to shortstop out of mount carmel high school in illinois and he was the top prep shortstop in a kind of a week draft for shortstops uh he's done some really good things there in high school um, he is a guy that uh, is looked at as a could be a mainstay for the Cubs coming up six foot two, very quick bat has quick hands. And he has a guy that they feel is going to be able to cover a lot of ground for the Cubs in that infield. It's going to be a matter of if he's going to be able to break in there uh, and how long it's going to take, but he's a hometown kid. They know about him. They followed him and they feel like he could be somebody that could really step in and do some big things at number 17, the Boston Red Sox. They take Nick York, second baseman, Archbishop uh, Midy High School from California, and uh, York is a guy that uh, has a lot of speed, a lot of range, and very successful uh, so far in his career. He's a guy with a very good bat, and the Red Sox are looking at him as somebody that can uh, come in and do some big things for them defensively and with the bat in his hands, a guy that they're very happy with. So watch this edition for Red Sox Nation, Nick York, second baseman, uh, is a guy to keep our eye on. Arizona Diamondbacks, number 18, Bryce Jarvis, uh, recapping last night's Major League Baseball draft. Jarvis is a son of former Major League uh, pitcher Kevin Jarvis. Uh, Bryce went in the 37th round to the Yankees last year, so, boy, has he moved up. Uh, he's number 18 in the first round this year. But the added velocity as a right-handed pitcher out of Duke Uh, He's now in the mid-90s. He has an outstanding changeup. This is a case with Bryce Jarvis where he put the time in, got better, and came back for another year to make himself improve. And he went from 37th round to first round at pick number 18. That's how much he's improved. He's off to a great start, 40 Ks in uh, two walks in 27 innings. He's 22 years of age and he's a guy that they definitely feel great things for in Arizona. Closing this out, we're going to go through the top 20 New York Mets. Uh, Pete Crow Armstrong, center fielder out of uh, Harvard Westlake High School. And uh, yeah, Crow Armstrong, uh, the son of two actors. Crow Armstrong is from the same prep school that produced Lucas Giolito, Max Fried, and Jack Flaherty. He's a guy that has a lot of talent and a center fielder that covers a lot of ground, a great defender, great runner, great speed on the bases, and a guy that really is going to bring a lot to the New York Mets. They're going to love this kid. I don't know at center field if he's going to be able to get in there right away. They may have to adjust to move him around, but he's a guy that they're really high on and a guy that has that power that they need, and they're going to love him there in New York. And rounding it out, number 20 for the Milwaukee Brewers, Garrett Mitchell, the center fielder out of UCLA. This is a guy that's six foot three, two hundred pounders, bats left-handed. He has big power. Uh, He's had a seventy or eighty rating in terms of speed. He hasn't learned about his power yet. He's really hasn't tapped into it. He knows how to hit. He's had twelve triples. Think about that for a minute. Uh, He had a great stat line in 2020. He hit 355 with only three strikeouts in 15 games, but without a home run. So. It's a situation there. Uh, Garrett Mitchell has type 1 diabetes. It has some concerns about his durability and stamina and if that's going to affect his game. But he's put up some big numbers. He goes at number 20 to the Milwaukee Brewers. But the situation there is he's got a great contact bat. They're just worried about his power production there. So the wonder is, will he be able to put up some big numbers from a power aspect in Milwaukee. And that's going to wrap up your look at your top 20 picks in terms of the Major League Baseball draft, which was last night. So here's the thing we got the Major League Baseball draft. We have players coming in to a league that we hope gets started soon. I still have been under this big hope that July 4th, I can see us all coming together watching baseball. I don't think that's going to happen now as the clock ticks. It looks like it's dragging out further and further. But I hold hope that Rob Manford, the commissioner, went on record yesterday saying 100% there will be baseball in 2020. May not be many games, but there will be baseball. Going to take a timeout on the Sports King show. Come back, and we're going to get it all teed up for Ray Schonke, the Redskins guard who played for the team for 12 years. All that and more on the way as we continue this Thursday morning edition of the Sports King. Don't touch that dial.
1: Hi, this is Mike Singletary, former Chicago Bear Hall of Famer, you're listening to my friend Jamie King, the Sports King on Sports 106.1 Welcome back You're listening to a man who is cooler than the other side of the pillow It's the Sports King on Sports 106.1
2: And welcome back Finishing up hour one on the Sports King show Heading to the 11 o'clock hour, Ray Shonky, longtime Redskin guard. We're going to talk to him coming up at the top of the hour. Of course, our man, Dr. Paul Ross, the Prince of Podiatry, the Bishop of Bunions. We love him here. He's got something to talk about today. The Ross Rules of Foot Care It's going to be about Achilles tendon injuries. You don't want to miss that as he talks to us about how to prevent those type of things and how to deal with it if you actually have... Uh, experience something like that along your Achilles. Uh, we know about that. Of course, uh, Sonny Jurgensen, we talked about that, and his Achilles injury leading up to Super Bowl Seven, where many people felt he could have been the difference maker for the Redskins. I do want to make a point right now to talk about, and please uh, give us your call as we close out this hour, 804-327-0888 is the number. Reggie Bush, as I look in my office, I see a signed ball from Reggie Bush. I really really think a lot of Reggie Bush as a player. A uh, talented young man, did a lot for the game, one of the great college players of all time. I don't know the inner workings of Reggie Bush. I don't know the mindset in terms of what happened, what didn't happen. But I know this, that Reggie Bush, and this is 10 years ago as of yesterday, sent back his Heisman Trophy. He forfeited the Heisman Trophy sent it back to Heritage Hall and basically said, you know, I can't go back to USC, my alma mater. I can't go back there. Despite being coming one of the greatest players ever to play for USC. So he has been wiped from the record books, folks. And I just think there's some things wrong with that. Am I giving him a pass in terms of did he receive proper benefits? We know that's never happened at the college level. So, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying he did. I'm not saying he didn't. But evidently, they felt there was enough evidence to say enough of Reggie Bush. We're going to wipe him from the record books and not give him what he rightfully has earned. But the hypocrisy of college football drives me crazy. How can you take Reggie Bush and wipe him off of USC's record books take his Heisman Trophy out of Heritage Hall. So if you've ever been on the campus of USC, Heritage Hall has all of the great Heisman Trophies, that trophy winners there. You continue to have the display featuring OJ Simpson and the Heisman Trophy for OJ Simpson, but not for Reggie Bush. Now those are folks out there that feel OJ may have had something to do with the situation he was involved in criminally. Some people feel that he wasn't. That's your take. I'm not here to tell you either way. But I'm saying after that cloud and after what he went through, what Bush did was like a minor parking offense or jaywalking, comparably speaking, in terms of what happened there. But under one light, it's okay to say, keep OJ stuff here. And don't get me wrong, from a playing standpoint, and I'm not talking about personally and outside of the situation with oj and i will say this i did have interaction with oj at a monday night game spent a little time with him got to speak with him and it wasn't a long time but he was very nice to me a very nice man and i can't speak to what's happened in his personal life i can't speak to what he may or may not have done i do know my interaction with him he was very kind to me for what it's worth But to have his Heisman Trophy there in Heritage Hall and Reggie Bush be wiped from the record books is ludicrous. So the Heisman Trophy executive director, Rob Whelan, asked for a reaction to the end of Bush's disassociation with the Heisman Trophy. And he basically had no comment at this time. Somebody needs to step up and say, we need to have a comment and make this right. The NCAA came down hard on USC. The reduction of 30 scholarships over three years reduced the Trojans' depth chart pretty much to... Uh, Whoever walked by, I mean, they picked guys out of parking lots to play for the Trojans. It was bad. They had a two-year bowl ban, uh, limited practices. It was ugly. And then, of course, uh, Lane Kiffin came in there. It was a mess. It just got worse and worse. But to erase a Reggie Bush is just wrong. I'm glad they're making it right now. It's a situation where, uh, you know, you can put an asterisk near his name. You can say he cheated on whatever level he cheated. But you cannot... Take away the greatness of Reggie Bush. I'm not a Reggie Bush apologist. I'm not saying Reggie Bush did what was right. I'm saying that Reggie Bush is not a perfect human being. But no one watching, listening to me right now, can ever say this guy wasn't electric. This guy wasn't one of the greatest players to ever play college football. That's a fact. I'm a coach. And I'm going to tell you right now, Reggie Bush could play for me any time. I would hand the ball to number five. and know full and well, he would deliver the goods. Now, would it be somebody mentoring him at the high level, one of the head coaches there that could have taken him aside and tried to shepherd him and help him and get him through some of the tough times and things he went through? We know now that players are going to be able to get financial assistance in some cases for their brand you imagine what Reggie Bush's brand would be worth today in today's market? He would get a king's ransom, pun intended. But Reggie Bush did some things. He has paid his price, and that trophy is going to be returned rightfully to Reggie Bush. And Reggie Bush is a guy, whether you like him, whether you don't, pro or con, you can never argue the number five will not go down is one of the greatest to ever carry the football and electric in everything he did. So good for you, Reggie Bush. I'm so glad that uh, the Heisman Trophy winning season of 2005, remember this, he rushed for 1,740 yards, 16 touchdowns that year, did some great things, and he deserves his Heisman back. So USC and the NCAA making it right. We're going to take a break. Come back. we got Ray Shonkey coming up right after the top of the hour right here on The Sports King.
1: Sports fans, this is former Washington Redskins quarterback and Super Bowl 26 MVP Mark Riften. You
0: are listening to my favorite sports show, The Sports King, hosted by my great friend Jamie King on Sports 1061. Hi, I'm Tim Cosgrove, President and General Manager at CMA's Colonial Honda. Our goal has always been to make the car buying process easy. So when we couldn't serve you in person, we found a different solution: CMA's Easy Purchase. It's simple. All you have to do is head to CMA's ColonialHonda.com, select your vehicle, secure your financing, value your trade-in, and select the delivery location. CMA's Colonial Honda. Owners just do more. Visit CMA's ColonialHonda.com.
1: Sports King Nation, want to take part in the show? Here's your chance to call the studio line. 804-327-0888. That's 804-327-0888.
2: thursday thursday welcome back sports king sports king nation thank you for joining us facebook live sports 1061 we'll be joined momentarily by ray shonky 12 years he was in the nfl 10 of them with the washington redskins how good was he one of the 100 greatest players ever to don the burgundy and gold and we'll join him momentarily Uh, we're looking at a situation, of course, the top story we had, of course, NASCAR is now debating in terms of they're getting rid of the Confederate flag. It's, uh, getting mixed results from some, some are in total agreement and they're trying to look at this and see how it's going to be in terms of viewed as far as the significance of the change. So that's happening there. Uh, one of the top stories out there right now, of course, we went through the major league baseball draft. And coming up in just a little bit after Ray Shonky, it'll be Dr. Paul Ross. So we are excited to have Ray on. Of course, a guy that played with both um, Billy Kilmer and Sonny Jurgensen. So we're going to find some of the inner workings of that huddle to find out what really happened behind the scenes. We're excited about that. It's a situation that uh, you put a lot of time into a great career and did some amazing things for the Washington Redskins. So we're going to go out to the phones now, and we welcome for the first time – First time on the Sports King show. The great Ray Schonke, of course, uh, played for the Skins. And uh, we welcome him to the show. Good morning, Ray.
3: Good morning, Jamie. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. When I reviewed your career, some things upset me. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, it takes a lot to get me upset. But I saw that your career, you started with the Cowboys. Come on, Ray. You got to get off the dark side, come into the light. And you did. You got the burgundy and gold. But what happened there?
3: Well, uh, we ran into a few problems. One is my line coach. I, was, I started my second year, which was you know quite an accomplishment uh, in the NFL. But uh, my line coach and I uh, didn't get along at all. And we nearly got into a fist fight in the last game of the season. <laughs> and then the next season, I went to Landry and I said, I want to try it on defense because I was a defensive player in college. And I went there and I tore a hamstring. went to early camp as a defensive end, tore my hamstring, uh, the trainer had a new theory that you stretched it out. He ripped the muscle and I couldn't walk and they cut me. I didn't realize I could have, could have stopped my salary. And I thought somebody would pick me up and nobody did. And, uh, so I don't really, I have a connection to the Cowboys in that I played for a couple of years with them and I have some good friends and actually some of, some of the guys I played with came to the, the skins later on, uh, but it was an interesting relationship because you know that team went on to become the darling of, of the NFL and Landry who I thought was just meticulous and uh non-feeling became one of the greatest coaches ever in the NFL. Uh
2: when we look at your career just amazing 145 games played 74 started uh you don't see a lot of NFL success out of Hawaii. So let's go back in time uh, in terms of your high school career and when you got out of high school. When did things start coming together for you as far as a player? And you knew, I guess, coming out of Hawaii, not having a lot of guys having great success, that you were setting a trend in terms of success from Hawaiian player standpoint. So talk about that and maybe some of the obstacles you had to overcome to get to the next level in terms of college.
3: Well, uh, I uh, actually, my dad was in the military. I was born in Hawaii uh, right before World War II started, and uh, and my father then went to the European theater. We 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 traveled around the country uh, while he was in the service, and I ended up he ended up with a tour in Texas. And uh, in my fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, which was the formative years back then in Texas, and it probably is still today, uh, football was, was king. And you started playing early and I started having some success, uh, there. And then, uh, he, he transferred to Hawaii. And then in Hawaii, I, uh, I went to a school, uh, the history of Hawaii, which I'm, I'm sure some of you listeners know something about and others don't, uh, they have a tremendous, back then they had a tremendous athletic program. Um, uh, and it was a small community, Um uh, And uh, you would have 25,000 people at a football game. And the the rivalry between the public schools and the private schools, there were a lot of private schools there, and that was set up by missionaries who came to Hawaii many years ago. And some of these schools uh, recruited. uh, And in order to compete against the public schools, they would bring guys in and uh, became really scholarship boys, and we were really the, the henchmen to represent the school against the public schools. Uh, sports in Hawaii, and particularly the Polynesians, uh, were big, mean, and like that mixed it up. And I got a really a great taste of what it is to be on a really ferocious and, and tough uh, high school team. And uh, and it was uh, really a, an education for me. But also, there were a few players who went on from high school to college and made it into pros. And one guy was Charlie Onade who played for the Detroit lions in the fifties behind Bobby lane and Doak Walker. And he became my inspiration that if Charlie could make it to the pros, I could make it to the pros. And then my dad decided to go back to Texas my senior year. And I was totally uh, upset about it because I just loved Hawaii. Uh, but then I, we w- went back to the, to the town that uh, we originally were in and uh, they had a great football team. And I, uh, became an all-state football player for Weatherford, Texas, at Division 3 We were 91 and, and number two in the state. Uh, and then from there I went on to SMU, which was in uh, Dallas, Texas, and that's at my my college career, and then on from there to the pros.
2: My son Patrick was a top-rated kicker in the nation back in 2000. I remember getting a call from June Jones, a coach at Hawaii, saying, hey, we'd like to bring your son Patrick out here. Would he like to be in Hawaii? And of course the obvious answer there is coach, he would love to be there. The only problem is mom and dad don't get to go as far as uh, the travel and the distance, which was the only disappointing aspect, but talk about the Hawaii culture and what that meant to you being here. Of course, you said you hated the fact you had to go to Texas. Uh, can you talk about that experience and the fans there and what football means there on the islands?
3: Well, June Jones actually is a, is a good friend of mine. Um, and uh, I've, uh, as a matter of fact, I just talked to him last night. Um, he is, uh, he, of course, was a run and shoot guy, but uh, mm-hmm. he, uh, before June came around to Hawaii, uh, Hawaii was known for their linemen and linebackers. We were defensive players, uh, we're big, strong, and we like to mix it up. June started crafting quarterbacks and uh, worked with them, and that's where he got to a Togo Haloa, who was going to Miami this year. And he came out of Alabama. Hawaii football was uh, truly, I loved it. I just uh, fell in love. I'm still very close to a lot of my teammates there. We, we talk to each other often and think about those glory days. The team in Texas, however, was uh, also a very proficient team. Uh, we were number two in the state for 3A division. We had a marvelous team, a great coach. In uh, the little town, you know, it was 10,000 people. Uh, everybody in town would follow you when you went to a uh, to play out of out of the uh, city limits. So it was uh, it was a really uh, a wonderful uh,
4: experience.
2: Our special guest Ray Shonky, of course, the outstanding tackle. He played guard, of course, for the Redskins. When you look back at your career in co- in the college aspect, you went to SMU. Can you talk about the transition from high school to, uh, of course, college SMU? Why SMU? Were there other schools involved? What made you settle on becoming a Mustang?
3: Well, uh, I played a lot of positions uh, from the line. I was a running back uh, coming out of my senior year in high school. Uh, I was offered scholarships throughout the Southwest Conference at the time. Uh, Oklahoma was a big powerhouse during those years, and Notre Dame also was interested, and I got some feelers from the Big Ten and and the West Coast schools. Um, And I decided to go to SMU because uh, at the time they had Don Merritt, and they played the best schedule in the country as far as I was concerned, They played Big Ten, they played the, the Coastal School, the Military Academies, and also the teams in the Southwest College were very good. And it was a very good academic school. It was small. They sort of reminded me of the school that I went to in Hawaii. Uh, and my transition uh, was relatively easy. Uh, I was big, strong, fast, and I was fearless. And, uh, and so immediately, uh, the seniors and the upperclassmen went after me and and we got into fights, and it got so bad that the freshmen, when they go down to scrimmage, the varsity, they would lead me up on the field with the coach by myself. Because every time <laughs> I went down there, we ended up in fights with the, with the uh, varsity. Uh, unfortunately, while well, uh, the team was frank, when I went there, and they played outstanding schedule, my sophomore, junior, and senior. We played top 10 uh, Heisman Trophy winners. Joe Bolino played Navy in my sophomore year. We played USC. Uh, Ohio State uh, Missouri uh, it was uh, a terrible experience because we only won two games my entire career uh, so we were you know we had won zero games my sophomore year one game my my junior year and one game my senior year so it was a, a terrible experience from a, from a winning standpoint but uh, coming out of that you know it taught me a lot and uh, i was drafted uh, I was concerned you know of the, I wouldn't get a lot of notice, but I still made uh, All-American, and I made all well, so I conference, and I was well; I was really proud. I was my academic All-American. And so my teachers that I had there really strongly urged me to you know, focus on my scholastic teacher, not, not football. But I knew I had to play football, and the Cowboys drafted me, and also the Dallas Texans, which became the Kansas City Chiefs. And everybody assumed, because the person who owned the team was from uh, SMU alum, that I would go with the Dallas Texans, the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, but I, I always wanted to play in the NFL, so I chose the Cowboys. And that, that Great. was transition.
2: Can you speak to the academic side? We have a lot of parents out there and student athletes trying to come up, and I always preach about the fact that if you can't do it in the classroom, you won't see the field. You're an All American from an academic standpoint. You've done great in business, you've had a great career, and a very smart guy throughout your entire process. Of course, folks say, well, Hey, being a guard, what do you have to know? And you don't understand the intricacies. Uh, of. Sometimes they think offensive linemen just block. There's not a lot to it. I mean, there's just some novice folks out there. And I say if you knew how much goes into the plays and what has to happen and the timing aspects and it is just so much, it's like a perfect uh, concert with all the different uh, musicians coming together. Same thing on the offensive line. Can you speak to the academic side and how important that was for your career? Of course, you were an all American there academically and for the student athletes listening in terms of what and why to play so much importance on the academic side.
3: Well, you know, as a coach, uh, what, to, to expect, you know, from your lineman. I mean, there, there's so much technique. Uh, understanding who your opponent is, what his strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, when you're playing in the NFL, you're you're playing, you know, the, the top of the game. And and and, uh, and as you once you start, you play everybody who's up against you is outstanding. But then you play outstanding people like Bob Lilly, who was all pro, and Buck Buchanan, who was a Giant, and uh, and La Alzado. You get these guys who are not only big, strong. But they're mean and nasty, and then they're they're very quick and they have very agile. So what you have to do is prepare yourself, both physically and mentally. Because I could play any position on the line, I had to learn. I was the first up for anybody who got hurt. So in the middle of the game, I could be playing uh, left guard, and the coach will tell me, "You got to go to right tackle." So and so is hurt, and uh, and there was no understanding like, "Yeah, well, he's middle of the game, and we understand Ray that you got." you know, uh, you're, you're not the regular starter and we'll overlook, you know, any mistakes you made, BS, they didn't overlook anything. They expected me to be perfect. And so you go in with that, uh, with the understanding you had to be perfect, but you can't be perfect. And so you know you're going to make mistakes, but you can't let it get to you because if it does, then you can't function. And so it, it, it is a huge discipline that you have to have both mentally and physically and combine the two in order to execute under enormous pressure and be able to play with this enormous abandonment and fierceness and be able to deal with that both physically and mentally. And and once you play that, particularly when I play somebody who's equally uh, challenged, knowing that they're all pro and and, and, uh, particularly I always check their backgrounds. I would call their uh, teammate from another team that I knew and say what kind of person was. I was more interested in a kind of student he was versus, uh, you know, at I knew that if he was smart, that was going to be an issue. And I needed to know that. Then I needed to know more about the, the guy himself. And so I would study these people when I had a book on them. And I particularly like to play somebody who probably did the same thing with me. And when the two of us would meet in a, in a battle, it would be just a marvelous
2: experience. Mark Mosley told us when he signed his deal, He got the major league amount of $2,500. I'm just thinking, looking back, you come in the league, 1963, round 11, pick 146 in the NFL draft, AFL draft, 1963, round 10, pick 73. Maybe more money in the AFL. I'm not sure on this. You've got the answer here. But I can't imagine it was earth-shattering money, but uh, I'm sure you're just happy to get the opportunity to be drafted. Well, you know,
3: it, it what it uh, you know I my dad was a retired military person so we didn't come from money and uh, and so uh, when the cowboys offered me fifteen thousand dollars and I called my dad and I said Dad what do you think he said that's more money I've ever made in my life take it and so I. Uh, Took the money, and, and, and Tex Ram, who was the general manager, said, You know, how much of that do you want now? I said, Well, can I have $3,500? Uh, and he said, Sure, here's $3,500 bonus. And so I went out and bought a Falcon convertible for my, <laughs> for my bonus. And so I thought I was so cool. I had this purple Falcon, four, four speed, with a black top, bucket seat. And I'm, I'm driving on a pull up to the Dallas Cowboy uh, camp. And then pull these guys with these Cadillacs, you know, eight, you know, eight miles long with big fins on it, and they look at this thing and they say, "Rookie, what the hell is that?" That was so <laughs> embarrassed. But that, you know, but anyway, so if fifteen thousand was uh, in today's money, you know, that's got to be pushing close. Believe it or not, it's got to be I would think somewhere close to 80000 dollars. So it, it wasn't chicken feed. It, you could do a lot with fifteen thousand dollars back then.
2: We're going to get in your Redskin career after the break. I do want to ask you before we get a break, of course, right now, we're in the midst of the pandemic, the situation, it's fluid there, of course, the racial strife in uh, America at this point. And I want to ask, and I asked Mike Bass yesterday, he told me some very fascinating things about what he endured. And, and I just want to ask you, Uh, Coming from a Polynesian descent, your background and so forth, did you endure through your career uh, the racist aspect, uh, anything of note in terms of uh, getting a hard time or being held down or being held back? Uh, What was your experience from that aspect and your thoughts on things today?
3: Uh, I was... uh... As a young as a young man uh young boy uh, in texas in the, in the fifth sixth seventh grade i was dark and i was fat and they call me fat girl and i would get in fight and there were bullies uh who went after me i was a nice kid i wasn't a and when i got to junior high i realized that the older kids were going to jump me and take off my pants that wasn't try to humiliate you in front of everybody and I skirted the issue for four days. But finally, Friday, I said, I just got to face them. So I went out there, and then, you know, we got into a huge fist fight, and I'm trying to defend myself. And the principal brings us in, chastised the boys who were going after me and, and told me, you know, that I needed to t- get tougher on it. And then I realized that the only way I can do this is that I need to fight back. And, uh, and from that point on, i went after bullies i think bullies are cowards once you once you go after them they give up and i became an intense person on that because i realized what these people were and i hated it because of the racial, racialness of it because i was a brown-skinned kid you know and back at that time black stand back brown stick around uh but i was but i was a little different but but because i was such an outstanding football player and a good student uh, you know, I was, I was appreciated and actually voted. You know, I was the president of my junior high class. So it was, I had some good feelings, but I also had some very negative feelings. And when I went to Hawaii, I felt so comfortable because everybody on our team uh, was of some, there were white people, we called them Holly, and there were Hawaiians. Were, we had some, a couple of black guys. We had uh, a lot of Koreans. Chinese, Japanese, uh, it was really a mixed bag. And the, in fact, one person said, uh, hey, what's Benny? Yeah, what nationality? And I had to think for a second because I didn't think of them in the race. I thought of them as a person. And, you know, and that was such a wonderful thing to have, that you saw people for who they were and not for what race they were. The race gave is- a lot of characteristics that were positive, you know, but again, everybody were individual.
2: Our special guest, Ray Shonky the outstanding guard for the Washington Redskins. We're going to turn the page. When we come back, we're going to talk about, of course, he was with the Cowboys, Packers, Browns, and he ended up with a home in Washington. He played in the league for 12 years, 10 of them outstandingly, of course, while a member of the Washington Redskins. We're going to find out about that Redskin career and much, much more with Ray Shonky our special guest, on the Thursday morning edition of the Sports King. Don't touch that dial.
1: Hi, this is Kirk Gaville, number 54, Washington Redskins. You're listening to my friend, Jamie King, the Sports King, on Sports 106.1. You're listening to a man whose future is so bright, he's got to wear shades. The Sports King on Sports
2: 106.1. And welcome back internationally we thank you for joining us and around the united states thank you for tuning in facebook live and sports 1061 we continue our discussion with one of the 100 greatest all-time redskins ray shonky this guy was the man on that offensive line he was a stalwart there we continue with him and by the way uh, so talented was he 145 games played in his NFL career. 74 started. When you look back, of course you come to Washington. Can you talk about your experience? Of course, I want to know what it's like to be in a huddle with the great hall of famer, Sonny Jurgis and that experience for you. Can you speak to that? Well, Sonny, uh, when I got there, he
3: was, you know, an out- he has already had built an outstanding reputation. Uh, you know, he was just a phenomenal passer, uh, but we were with Otto Graham, and Otto was a, was uh, a good coach, but he wasn't a great coach. And uh, and he, I think, his his offense was designed for Sonny. We had three outstanding receivers: Charlie Taylor, uh, Jerry Smith, and uh, Bobby Mitchell, and and we just lit up the you know the scoreboard. And and the way we won, we won by just outscoring everybody. Uh, when Allen came in, he was a defensive coach. He was defensive-minded. He didn't like to throw the ball. And, of course, Sonny was very upset because he wanted to uh, uh, throw the ball. And when Billy Kilmer was there, he was saying, heck, I'm I'm never going to play because of Sonny. And then Sonny got hurt. And Billy came in, and he was outstanding. And what George Allen brought to the table was, not necessarily the passing attack he believed defense first special team second and offense last all he wanted yeah. was three scores we'd hold them to two defensively and get out of there but don't light up the scoreboard well Sonny wanted to light up the scoreboard and Sonny had some great games and I think that if if uh, Sonny was so brilliant so talented that he needed to have he needed to respect the head coach and the person that he loved and he respected was Vince Lombardi and I think if Vince had lived Sonny would would be the greatest quarterback that ever lived. Because wow. Lombardi could control Sonny, could, and Sonny admired uh, Lombardi. And Lombardi was just the meanest, toughest, hardest coach in the whole wide world. I mean, it was he was just unreal.
2: That is amazing. When, when, you, when you talk about the numbers they could have put up with uh, Lombardi, and you talk about what they could have done in terms of the numbers of wins, and the offensive philosophy of, you saw what Bart Starr did, you saw all the great things in terms of what they did with the Packers. You just think from your standpoint, and let me ask you this, as an offensive lineman, I know you get highlighted on your uh, pulling and when you're blocking in terms of the run aspect. Do you prefer pass blocking, the run blocking, or one over the other? What do you feel uh, you were better at, and which did you appreciate more in terms of uh, what you liked more? Well,
3: the game in the pro is 50% passing. If not more, but pass blocking, you've got to be able to pass block. If you can't pass block, you can't play period. And that was, I, I realized that my rookie year with the Dallas Cowboys because we played in a four point stance in college. I did not know how to pass block in the pro style. And when I got to camp at rookie camp at, uh, and, and after the Brettons came in at, with the Cowboys, nobody would tell you how to pass block because you're just competition. And it wasn't until uh, I had Bob Lilly, who was this all-pro, and he'd go around me so fast, and finally I just grabbed his face mask, and we got into a fight, and the coach said, Shonky, you got to pass block, and I screamed, but I don't know how to pass block, and all the veterans just laughed at me. So finally, one of the older vets pulled me aside and said, Shonky, let me show you a couple techniques. And that changed everything. And uh, that pass blocking is is essential, you know, is part, part of the game. Run block. Uh, is also important, particularly when you're trying to combine the two. And when when uh, with Lombardi, run block was critical because he he want, he liked the run and he liked to pass off the run. And so, uh, the nutcracker drill was a big deal with Lombardi. When I went up <laughs> to Green Green Bay, it was uh, it was just a must. And um, and you'd have these constant drills. And then we got to the Redskins with the same thing. So run block is very important, and it complements your offense. And you're a head coach, and you've been there, so you know how you want to balance your run game and your passing game, but you also want to use your talent. We had a very successful runner in Larry Brown, and he was a slasher. And I knew all I had to do was pick that leg out of that defensive tackle and keep leaning against him, and Larry would cut back, and he'd be by me so fast you know, that tackle would never have a chance to grab him. Uh, on the outside when you're playing tackle it's a little bit harder, particularly when you you're know, trying to hold a guy and you're trying to he's going off tackle. It's a harder block and I had two tall. I remember we were playing the um, Thanksgiving game and Dwayne Thomas was the running back. I said, Dwayne, I'm gonna hold two tall for two just two seconds tops. And you better get your ass around me fast and he went around and went made a touchdown. So <laughs> So blocking it, it, it's it's the combination, you know, I I I I spent hours perfecting both, uh, and uh, and it's it, it, uh, it's a skill that, that you've got to have to be able to play at that level.
2: Ray Schonke was one of the absolute best in his position. Let me ask you this, and this may be a tough one. In terms of your entire career, when you looked at certain matchups and certain teams coming in to RFK or when you went on the road, you circled and said, uh-oh, this is going to be a really uh, tough battle. And don't get me wrong. I know all battles are tough at the NFL level. Was there one guy that gave you fits or one guy that you were like, uh, this is going to be an all-day battle here? What was that uh, particular matchup that you looked at and said, this is the one that really I circle is the – one of the toughest ones out too tall Jones. You just mentioned he was a beast. We remember him. Well, um, uh, some other guys, maybe that stood out to you that said, Hey, this is, uh, well, you one know, Bob Lilly,
3: Two tall, uh, Lyle Alzado, uh, buck Buchanan, um, you know, and I'm trying to remember the guy at uh, the Cleveland Browns who was just a marvelous. He was, he was a defensive lineman and he went on to become a psychologist and the two of us mentally and physically were just battling each other, which just so intense and so exciting. But each one of them had had a different uh, feeling. And what I would do is I would call. I mean, I try to get a book on these guys. I would call their teammates and say, what kind of guy was he? You know, can you tell me anything about I particularly was interested in in his study habits and how smart he was. I wasn't too concerned about if they're just beasts. But the guy you really worried about was a small, quick guy who was smart, not the big, strong guy who would try to kill you. Now, Lionel Isaiah would try to kill you, and of course, he was on drugs. He was on everything you can imagine, and uh, and it was just a fistfight, you know. And and after a while, he got he gets so frustrated, he just start he just starts fighting you, you know. He punch you, and then you had to, you know. We ended up in a fist fight. and then first thing you know, he's telling everybody to jump me, you know. <laughs> so when, it was a Monday night game, he was, 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 was at the time with the Denver Broncos, and he mild off how many nice sacks he was going to get. Well, he didn't get any. And, uh, and then Joe Theismann comes in. We're running off the clock, and Joe is third quarterback. And so Joe comes in, and he wants to start throwing the ball. I said, Joe, you need to run the clock out. And he looked at me. I'm the quarterback. I said, and you're going to get a lookout block. He said, he looked at me, and if you know what a lookout block is? Look out, because I'm leaving now yep, yep. in <laughs> He's going to come and kill you. And he, Joe said, you wouldn't do that. I said, try me. But he, he, he ran the clock out. So it was cool. But uh, yeah, uh, it's there. It's just, it's uh, our job is to open holes. Our job is to make sure the quarterback's not touched. Uh, A lot of people don't appreciate or understand too much what we do. Uh, I was, I took great pride in it because I knew I could end up playing any position on the line at any time, and I had to be perfect. You know, and uh, it's impossible to be perfect. (laughs) But I'll tell you what.
2: Uh, you you were as perfect as they come with the uh, guard play you did such an amazing job when you look back that seventy two super Bowl we fell short 14 to seven in a game that uh, we were looked at as potential favorites there and a chance to win it what's your remembrances of that game and your first opportunity with the super Bowl well
3: it was it, uh i had play, i had lost my starting position that season and i was very i i uh, part of my, my life has been very political, too, and, and that's a whole other side of me. And I got into a rhubarb anyway. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, I lost my starting position, and I ended up playing in the two playoff games, really outstanding games against uh, Dallas and Green Bay. Green Bay, I played right guard against Dallas. I played left tackle. And both times and in, in dire situations, there was injuries. and uh, And, again, you know, most important game at the time in the history of the franchise, and I knew I had to be perfect. And I, I, I was so proud of myself in each each of those games. Uh, the game two, uh, when we played Miami Dolphins, I, I only played on the special teams. I didn't get. It was a, it was a, it was a downer. It, we, and we just I think I don't know if if we over if it was overcoach or there's too uh, there's too much pressure. We just weren't comfortable at all at that game, you know, and and it was unfortunate. Uh, What I did enjoy, though, in '74, uh, when Sonny came in to play, we were playing Miami in in, uh, Washington, and we beat them. And I remember being on that last drive where Sonny, we started on the, uh, I think, on the five or 10 yard line. And he said, and we're behind, and we needed uh, a touchdown. And uh, 90 seconds later, and after maybe five or six plays, and I had Stanfield with this all pro defensive end. on playing right tackle. And it was my chance to, and also Sonny, you know, to win this game. And when I, when we won that game, I was just elated, you know, to be able to take on the, the Dolphins. Sonny was the QB and I, I was the playing right tackle. And it was just a, a marvelous feeling.
2: Yeah, I would say this. I've always gone on record saying, has Sonny not been injured? Nothing is Billy. I think Sonny, Uh, aerial-wise, could have had a field day against those Dolphins, and we could have won that game, but it is what it is. Um, And looking at your historic career, it was a great, uh, so many great moments. And, uh, of course, in 2015, you were honored uh, and voted into the Polynesian Hall of Fame. Uh, When you look at your career and our final moment, uh, what exactly uh, is a signature moment of your career that you uh, cherish the most?
3: Well, you know, I played 12 years. Uh, uh, It defined me. Um, I went on to do other things, but it gave me a base. I got to be with some great coaches who taught me, and you're a coach, and you know what what motivational leadership is. I went into a very complex industry where tax, legal, finance, and accounting were were disciplines that were needed to build a a national firm, and I, I didn't have those. I hired those. But what I did have was leadership, motivation, I had organization skills that I learned from these great coaches, you know. So the game itself was the basis for me. I also learned early when I, when I played for three teams in a couple of years that it was a short-lived industry, that you needed to really prepare for the day when you were going to retire. And people don't realize that the average career of an NFL player is only three years. And most of them, unfortunately, don't have a degree when it's over, are unemployed and bankrupt. And that, that's the sad commentary. And I was determined I wasn't going to be in that category. And so I prepared myself. And, but I couldn't have done anything. I couldn't have built anything and done what I've been able to accomplish without those 12 years in the NFL.
2: He was one of a kind, folks. Ray Shonke, uh outstanding guard for the Skins. He did so much. And, folks, he was nicknamed the mummy for the amount of sports <laughs> tape uh, they would use on him. He had five surgeries, two knee replacements, and he showed up for the Washington Redskins 145 games played a guy that just gave everything he had and when you look at the great ones this guy's name is at the top of the list in terms of offensive line play and I will say this of course one of the 100 greatest Redskins all time this has been an honor Ray we hope to have you back Uh, when football season comes back around hopefully we can get you back on and talk some more we've got so much more to talk about thank you so much for joining us today and of course you've done it academically you've done it in the business world football you've had it such a remarkable life it's been our pleasure to have you on the sports King show today.
3: Thank you very much, Jamie. I greatly appreciate
2: it. Ray shonky and what a outstanding man and a guy that was a leader in everything he did. And we appreciate him. Of course, all those great. It's one of those things you get on a roll and you want to talk about every single game. There's only so much you can do in such a short time. We're going to take a time out come back with Dr. Paul Ross. Dr. Paul Ross, of course, is gonna talk to us about some foot care issues, the Achilles tendon injuries. He's gonna talk about that aspect when the Sports King rolls on this Thursday morning.
0: Hey, this is Joe Theismann and you're listening to the Sports King with Jamie King. Hi, I'm Tim Cosgrove, President and General Manager at CMA's Colonial Honda. Our goal has always been to make the car buying process easy. So when we couldn't serve you in person, we found a different solution. CMA's Easy Purchase. It's simple. All you have to do is head to CMA's Colonial Honda.com, select your vehicle, secure your financing, value your trade in, and select the delivery location. CMA's Colonial Honda. Owners just do more. Visit CMA's Colonial Honda.com.
1: Let's get back to the guy who said where there's a will, there's a relative. Oh, you're listening to Sports King, right here on Sports 1061.
2: Welcome back, Thursday morning edition of the Sports King. Thank you for listening around the world and throughout the United States. We thank you. And, folks, you don't have to look any further when it comes to foot care. The number one podiatrist in America, we've got him here. You know him, folks. He's a titan of the tibia, the bishop of bunions, the master of the metatarsal. And how about this one? You don't think I know the foot? The captain of the calcaneus i hope i got that right we welcome him you know him you love him dr paul ross was i close doctor you were close my
4: friend very close. there you go hey i'm not operating so i don't have to know it like you do no you don't know anything exactly you don't have to know where to go
2: I love this guy so much. Uh, I'm holding court in my backyard. People that have asked me, hey, we heard your commercial about that foot care. Is that guy that good? Folks, let me tell you something. A- 180,000 people over his career have come through there and he takes care of every aspect of the foot if you have a problem there's nobody better and doctor how has it been going things are starting to come back more and more people are coming to your office you guys are safeguarding at every step talk about how things are starting to open up in the revival if you will of your business
4: yeah jamie uh, thanks so much for asking uh, certainly with the restrictions being uh Released a little bit and get into the next phase of the, the, uh, the counties opening up. We're seeing uh, patients uh, wanting to get out more and take care of their problems. Many patients were finding out, didn't even know that we were open, and they're glad to know that we are. And, and um, we're at full capacity seeing uh, our full load of patients again. So it's, a, it's good that we're uh, here and able to uh, lend the services that we need to lend. People ask me
2: about uh, my thoughts on foot care and why you have to take care of your feet. And I'm like, you have two feet, you have to take care of them. It's almost like some people uh, from coaching standpoint used to ask me, are kickers really important? And I tell them, you know what, my philosophy on kickers, you never, ever really need a kicker until you need a kicker. <laughs> Same with uh, foot care. Uh, you know, when you have somebody that knows what you know, in terms of protecting and i tell people all the time you got two feet got to take care of them foot care and prevention is such a big thing and a such a big aspect of what you do there. Not only do you do detailed plans for everybody that comes in, but you also try to help prevent things. One thing about Dr. Ross I love about it is not about, hey, let's get you under the knife, let's go to the extremes. You always look to see what you can do to help someone first and foremost and always, and then if you have to do surgically uh, some aspects, you'll do that, but it's always about preventative and what's best for your patient, and that's something you've always done.
4: Well, one thing I've always known, we have one pair, and they must last a lifetime. So they are a mode of transportation, they're a mode of enjoyment in life, and when they hurt, you hurt all over. So we know how important our feet are as a, a vital structure on our body. And I've had many people tell me that they are, their feet are like their money makers. They can't go to work, they can't stand, they can't do the things that they do because their feet are bothering them. And essentially, they're not able to be productive and uh, earn a living. So those people who are on their feet all day long certainly know the uh, the value of having a happy, healthy feet. So yeah, we take it very seriously. We're here to do everything we can to maintain people in an active lifestyle as much as we can. And if we have to do something more to take care of something and fix something surgically, then we have the capacity to do that. But more importantly, we just want to not have to do any of that stuff and do all the things that we can, just uh, keeping people on their feet and going
2: you talk about the calluses and the bunions and the spurs and people have to understand it like saying your daily walk you have things that come up and crop up and like you say that comfort aspect for people that are on their feet whether you're serving food or uh delivering items whatever it may be so many people in their daily walk every day have excruciating foot pain you have to understand not only foot care and the proper footwear, but the fact like you say you can take care of problems big and small and you've seen it all there uh but even these little spurs and type things can really ruin somebody's uh, day in terms of the pain they go through but you address every single aspect
4: yeah, absolutely I mean unfortunately there are too many people who think that at the end of the day if their feet hurt that's a normal thing it's not normal at all feet shouldn't be hurting at the end of your day no matter what you're doing on it. if they are hurting there's something going on that needs to be addressed and taken a closer look at before something more uh, devastating can happen by ignoring something that might be handled more readily so, indeed, we're able to take care of it all, and we know that uh, if we catch something sooner, the the fix is a lot easier.
2: Our special guest, Dr. Paul Ross, of course uh- – Dr. Paul Ross has the Ross rules coming up momentarily. Could you please tell our listeners where to, uh, of course, they can set up virtual meetings with you as well, where they can get a hold of you. Of course, you got offices in Springfield and Springfield, Virginia, and Bethesda, Maryland, and a number and your email so we can get everybody up to date.
4: Yeah, sure. Um, you can certainly reach us on our website, which is paulrossdpm.com. We have all information there, so we have all of our contact information. But the contact information for the Virginia office is 703-451-2977. And the contact for the Maryland location is 301-656-6055. Fantastic. Go ahead, Doc. No, I said, and and then whichever number you'll call, will get you into the appropriate office to take care of whatever the problems we have.
2: Absolutely, folks. And let me tell you something, 180,000 people can't be wrong. And now it's a time of the show that we love. It's the Ross Rules of Foot Care. Here he is, Dr. Paul Ross, today tackling the subject matter Achilles tendon injuries. Take it away, Doc.
4: A very unfortunate injury in sports is a tear of the Achilles tendon. It can take 6 to 12 months to get back to full strength depending on the severity of the injury. What's fascinating about this particular injury is how almost all victims – of it say a similar thing. They feel like they got a swift kick to the area, but when they turned around, no one was there. One wrong misstep and the Achilles can't tear. How does this pertain to you if you aren't playing a competitive sport? Well, Achilles tendon pain is something we see every day in our practice. The tendon is under so much tension with every step, it's a wonder it doesn't get injured more. You can have Achilles pain where it attaches to the heel bone or higher up. Neither one of them are comfortable, but here's the most important thing. If you let an Achilles tendon problem linger, it can tear. A torn Achilles not only hurts tremendously, it also takes many months to heal. At the sign of any pain in this area, immediately apply ice for about 30 minutes per hour, a few times a day. Refrain from any weight bearing exercise activities and put a heel left in your shoe. Of course, your fastest path to relief is to have it evaluated and treated by us. We have helped hundreds of people to avoid Achilles tendon injuries. This tendon is one of the slowest to heal. The earlier it is addressed, the less likely it is to become chronic. Don't ignore even the mildest of pain in your Achilles tendon. You don't want to be one of those people who says, I thought someone kicked me, but when I turned around, no one was behind me. We can help you get relief from Achilles pain and avoid a tear. So if you're having any issues like that, the sooner we can take care of it, the easier it is to fix and heal and hopefully avoid any further Achilles injuries going forward. Give us a call if you have any problems.
2: The Ross Rules of Foot Care brought to you by Dr. Paul Ross, of course, Podiatry Center with offices in Springfield, Virginia and Bethesda, Maryland. And Doc, before I let you go, if an athlete gets athlete's foot, what does an astronaut get?
4: You no, know, that's a new new diagnosis. I'm sure you have the answer for me. And that would be mistletoe. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, I'll hey, look, look that one up and have a treatment for you next week on the Ross rule. Mistletoe.
2: You <laughs> cannot <laughs> be serious. Well, anyway, you know, we try. Come on. you got to give me A for effort <laughs> there. And athletes, what do you say, Coach Ogeron? What do you say to enter in Baton Rouge? What do you okay. say? there we go that's all we need to know anyway dr ross have a great weekend ahead thank you for all you're doing for the community they're there every day your staff is making sure things are pristine and uh, providing the best service in both bethesda maryland and uh, springfield virginia you are the absolute best in folks number one in the nation take it from me i tell you i wouldn't go anywhere else he is the best thank you so much dr ross
4: jamie thank you be well and stay safe
2: you got it and so We want to thank uh, Ray Shonky, of course, our first guest today, uh, as we went off uh, and uh, talked about his illustrious career with the Redskins and all the things he did, some great stories there. And so I'm going to give you a present. Here's my gift to you for your Friday to look forward to. I've been saving this one up. Folks, tomorrow on the Sports King Show, one of the greatest running backs to ever play the game, Will be our special guest. Number 25, Joe Washington joins me. You don't want to miss this one. I am so excited. Played at Oklahoma, played for the Redskins. Joe Washington did so much in the NFL. It's just one of the most remarkable guys you'll ever hear from. And to hear all of those great Redskin games. And folks, if you want to see some greatness, Go back today, YouTube the Redskins versus Raiders and watch the final play of the game where he caught a touchdown pass to win it at RFK over the Raiders. 37-35. I was there one of the greatest moments ever to watch. And he had so many moments there, too many to talk about. Tomorrow on the show, Joe Washington. You don't want to miss that. Of course, today's top story. We talked about the Confederate flag. Will they Uh, in terms of the folks in NASCAR come back in droves? Will they stay away? Some folks are happy it's gone. Many feel that way. Some are very upset with this and are going to say, hey, we're not coming back. But hey, that is the way it is. But guys like uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. said five years ago, it's time for it to go. And it looks like it's going to be a thing of the past in NASCAR. We'll see how that goes. And of course we went through the Major League Baseball draft. We had Ray Shonky, and of course just finished with Dr. Paul Ross. We thank you all And we want to thank Tom Heckler as well. Tom has really helped me behind the scenes in terms of our booking and working with us. And uh, he and his wife, uh, he's out there in Arizona up at 5 o'clock in the morning. The guy's out there walking, doing his thing. We thank him so much. I want to thank Ben Maitland. And, of course, it all starts here with Big Al Sports Phone 8 to 10 Live. I follow 10 to 12. And then it's off to the jungle, Jim Rome coming up momentarily so i want to thank ben for all the work behind the glass i want to thank all of you facebook live sports 1061 Uh, have a great rest of your thursday we'll see you tomorrow for the friday edition of the sports king show with our special guest the one and only joe washington right here on sports 1061